Good morning, you guys. For those of you all who may not know me, my name is Trey Corey. I'm a college pastor here at Southwood, and it is a joy to get to fill in for Blake and be with you guys this morning. I'm going to be tackling uh, a tough question this morning. We're going to be talking about uh, what does the Bible say about the value of human life? Uh, we're going to be tackling a, a topic that has kind of fit in a series that we've been walking through uh, in our college class that follows this service at 11 all spring semester. We've been tackling tough issues, tough questions, uh, thorny topics. We've tackled, tackled the issue of uh, does absolute truth exist? We've talked about the problem of evil and suffering. We've even talked about homosexuality this semester that I promised Blake I would not talk on this morning. Um, We've been all over the map this semester, and so we're going to tackle this topic this morning together. What does the Bible say about the value of human life? Um, For me, as we've been going through this series this spring, I've been uh, beginning to listen to a voice that is familiar, but has been one that I haven't heard in a long, long time. A voice that I've begun to listen to afresh because of a little girl that the Lord has given us. Uh, some of you guys may know uh, our little girl Caroline. There we go. All right. This is our little girl Caroline. She's six and a half months. This was your classic blue bonnet picture over spring break. This is her first swim. So we are about six and a half months into this thing called parenthood. And as a result of that, we begin to listen to a voice that has been unfamiliar to me or familiar to me, but one I haven't heard in a long, long time. And that's Dr. Seuss. Uh, some of you guys may remember Dr. Seuss. Uh, it's been a while for me, but we've begun to read to sweet little Caroline, and I've been reminded of certain truths from Dr. Seuss, uh, the philosopher, the theologian, uh, the, the comedian. And so we've been reading a lot of Dr. Seuss, and in particular, I ran across this book this semester called Horton Hears a Who. Some of y'all may remember that book. It was also made into a movie a few years ago that starred Jim Carrey as the voice. Um, but in, in Horton Hears a Who, one of the things I love about that story, and I think it fits really well for our morning, if you guys remember the story, Horton the elephant is one in a jungle who begins to hear voices. He's hearing voices of those that are known as Who's who live in a little town of Whoville that is located on a tiny speck of dust. Unfortunately, none of Horton's jungle friends also hear the voices, and so they begin to rebuke him and to criticize him that he's hearing voices and that he's out of his mind. In order to try to help him stop hearing these voices, his friends decide to take the actual speck of dust and run away with it. I mean, in that process, Horton becomes horribly afraid that these little who's aren't going to be protected and preserved and that their life could be at risk. And so Horton chases after them. And the refrain and the line that he repeats over and over throughout the book is this. A person is a person no matter how small. And what I want to talk about this morning is the topic of personhood, the topic and the issue of what is unique and what is ultimately valuable about human life. Why are you and I significant at all as we look at all of creation? What makes us stand apart? What makes us unique? In fact, I think that topic is not just in children's books, but it's also in the topic of government-run health care today. The discussion and the issue that's running and that's at the undercurrent of a lot of the debate going on is this, that if at some point government is going to decide who gets health care and who doesn't, on what basis will they make choices? What is the value system that government has that will determine how they choose and who gets health care and who doesn't? It's also at the core of the debate between uh, in abortion and in euthanasia. In a much more lighthearted manner, it's also at core of the issue of a sporting event that happened this weekend. A sporting event that for me is one of my most favorite of the entire sports calendar year, but for many is overlooked, if not seen as horrible. It's something known as the NFL Draft. Now, for me, the NFL Draft is a holy weekend in our home, a weekend set apart for uncommon usage. Nothing goes on to the calendar because for now, Three days, Thursday night, Friday night, and all of Saturday, most of Saturday, I was glued to the NFL draft. Now, some of y'all may not be as attuned or interested in the NFL draft as I, but I absolutely love it. And in the NFL draft, what you have happening every single year is this. You have people who are paid thousands of dollars to make judgment decisions on who is most valuable for an organization for a football team. 
And so you have scouting combines, you have scouts who are paid thousands and thousands of dollars to make and help make decisions on athletes who will get paid millions and millions of dollars. It's a gigantic industry. In fact, there's so much interest in the NFL draft that over, I think, maybe 23 million people watched this event this weekend. But at the core of that event, you have men and women who are making distinctions and judgments about who is most valuable and who is deserving of most honor and most money, all right? And in that, what you have making decisions is based on height, based on weight, based on jumping ability, based on speed, based on essentially capacity. What can an athlete do? What is his capability? And because of that, he's granted more or less honor. He's drafted earlier than later. And in many regards, I think it's the same issue that we look at this morning. How do you and I determine who is valuable and who is worthy of honor or not? Who gets more, who gets less? In fact, I'd argue for many of us, it's not just in children's books. It's not just in the NFL draft. It's not just in the issue and the debate of abortion and youth in Asia. But it's also at the core to one of the questions that you and I ask and wrestle with every single day of our lives. Are you and I valuable? Are you and I unique and significant in God's eyes or for the most part, even in our own eyes? And we have all different kinds of ways of answering that question. For some of us that are college students or yet to be married, many of us begin to answer that question based on a romantic response to the opposite sex. I'm valuable, I'm worthy if there's someone that wants to spend their entire life with me and marry me. And as we wrestle with that and as we wait on that process to happen, we're wrestling with that and wondering, hey, am I valuable? And some of us are thinking, you know, if I could just have someone spend a Friday night with me, I'd feel far better, right? Because the question is, is the opposite sex the one that determines whether you and I are valuable or not? For those of us that have been married, as we enter into marriage, as we enter into employment and jobs, we have all different kinds of ways of determining our worth and our value. For some of us, we determine that and it's hooked directly to the amount that an employer will put, to, put on a paycheck to you and I. The amount that you and I make seems to be an arbiter or a determiner of how valuable and significant we are. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know where you go to determine whether you are valuable and significant or not. But what I want to do this morning is go to the scriptures and take a look, not at Dr. Seuss, (laughs) not at uh, the NFL draft, but what do the scriptures say about you and I as to whether and how you and I are valuable and significant. Um, We're going to be all over the scriptures this morning. And so you can turn in your Bible if you want, but most of the verses we'll look at this morning will be up on the slides for you as we kind of kind of run through Genesis, even all the way to Revelation this morning. So buckle up, hang with me. Here we go. All right. So this morning, first I want to start out and say that I think God values all of humanity. And here's why I'd say that. I'm going to start you guys off at the beginning back in Genesis in the garden. Genesis chapter one, verse 26 and 27, we find this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It's kind of creepy. God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. Genesis chapter one, we find God has created man, humanity in his image. I'm going to argue this morning that the fact that we've been created in his image is what makes you and I distinct, unique in all of creation and what makes us viable and significant. But I'd argue that in some regards, this phrase created in his image is a phrase that you and I use all the time. But I think in some regards, you and I have no idea what it means. If I had to pin you down and say, really, what does it mean that you and I have been created in the image of God? How would you answer that? In many regards, it kind of reminds me of AP English for me. I'm a math and science guy. I'm not exactly using engineering right now, but um, I was a huge kind of math science guy. And so English for me in high school was brutal. I hated it, all right? Um, writing papers was a torturous process that took hours and sometimes even a little bit of tears, all right? Um, and so for me, by the time I finally got to the end of a paper, especially for AP English, I had a, a one last step that I would do. Over every sixth or seventh word, I'd take my cursor and I'd right-click over each sixth or seventh word and I'd pull up the thesaurus and I would 
upgrade my vocabulary. This is advanced placement English, and so I would, for every sixth or seventh word, end up ramping up my vocabulary for my paper. Why? It's advanced placement English. I got to sound good, right? But the problem was this. Every sixth or seventh word ended up having a word or a phrase that I actually didn't know what it meant, nor did I really know how to use it, all right? And so by about the second or third paper, my teacher finally said, hey, Trey, why don't you come in? I'd like to talk to you real quick. Put the three papers in front of me and goes, I know what you're doing. I began to sweat and I began to get really worried. He goes, I know you're using your thesaurus a little too much, all right? Don't use words that you're not sure of. But I think in some ways in the theological circle, we do that quite often. There's all kinds of words that we use, but we may not even have a real clear sense of what in the world they mean. I think sometimes we talk about being created in the image of God. We really have no idea what it means to be in the image of God. What does that mean? That's where I want to kind of camp out this morning because I think the definition of what it means to be in his image is the very basis upon which you and I have value and have significance. And our ambiguity about that definition, I also think is part of why we often search for a bunch of different reasons for why and why we should be significant. So what does it mean? More often than not, people will define what it means to be in the image of God as the likeness of God. In fact, Genesis 1 will have that similarity. Uh, But not just what it means to be in the likeness of God, but we'll often say what it means to be in the likeness of God is what it means to be different than the animal kingdom, all right? So what makes you and I similar or in the image of God, many will say historically is the same thing that makes you and I distinct from the animal kingdom. So how are you and I distinct from the animal kingdom? Most often we'll find this answer. And essentially, many will say that it's based on our reason or our morality. But what makes you and I separate from the animal kingdom is that you and I have an advanced intellect and a sense of right and wrong. Now, if you were to see my puppy at home, you would know she's not the smartest one, right? But she's kind of got it at time, too. She can figure things out, and she also kind of seems to have some ability to be sympathetic and understanding, but a sense of morality probably definitely missing, right? So in a sense, I think we could argue that, yeah, we are more advanced intellectually than the animal kingdom. There's a sense of right and wrong that's within us that the animal kingdom does not have. But does that mean what it means to be in the image of God? Interestingly enough, that definition comes off in a lot of bioethicist stuff today. I'll give you guys a quote from an um, ethicist named Peter Singer. He says this, The fact that a being is a human being in the sense of a member of the species Homo sapiens is not relevant to the wrongness of killing it. It is rather characteristics like rationality, autonomy, and self-consciousness that make a difference. Notice what this bioethicist is saying. That what makes you and I significant in creation is not if you are part of the species Homo sapiens. What makes you and I distinct and unique and valuable is whether you and I have self-autonomy, self-consciousness, and rationality. And the more that we have of those, the more that we are valuable and significant. And in fact, if one of the Homo species Homo sapiens does not have those, then it is not unjustifiable to kill it. And so you have a huge uh, issue here, I think, not just in the bioethical realm, but even within the church where we define being in the image of God as something relating to some kind of capacity, whether based on rationale or based on a sense of a moral compass. What you're doing in many regards, I think, is, is disregarding a whole portion of humanity that is in some sense, maybe because of biological or because of genetic issues, in a sense, with a limited capacity. Those with a limited capacity physically, emotionally, mentally, psychologically, are they any less valuable and significant than those that have full capacities? And Phil Draft would say yes. Those that have expanded capacities are more valuable, but I want to argue to you that I don't think that's what the image of God means for you and I. To be in the image of God does not mean relating to anything based on capacity because there are so many within the human species that have diminished capacities and they are still in the image of God and they are still glorious and they are still valuable. So if it's not based on reason and morality, then what is it based on? 
Some will argue, secondly, that it's based on a relationship ability that you and I have in life. They'll go back to Genesis 1 and they'll read, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so you have in Genesis 1, the Trinitarian Godhead talking amongst itself and deciding to create humanity. And what they're saying as they talk amongst themselves, some will argue that what it means to be the image of God is relating to an ability to have relationship. And so the, the Trinity Godhead is a relational one. You have Father, Son, and Spirit. And as they relate, so they create humanity to relate, not just to God, but to each other. And so in our relational capacity, we are, in a sense, in the image of God. I'd argue in some regards, again, you have even within the animal kingdom and a relational capacity of fish, schools of fish, all different kinds of things, even in organisms that relate to relational capacity. And I'd argue, again, that that is actually not what it means to be in the image of God. In fact, I think that is an effect of being in the image of God. Because you and I have been created in the image of God, you and I can have relationship with God and relationship to one another. But that is an effect of a cause that we still have yet to identify. What does it mean to be in the image of God? I don't think it's reasonable morality. I don't think it's relational capacity. Some will argue that it is ruling ability. Back in Genesis 1, every time we see God creating man in his image and those creational decrees, the very next thing you see is commands regarding man's role or responsibility over the earth to rule on behalf of God. Is that what it means to be in the image of God, that we share a task with God? Is that what it means to be in the likeness of God? I'd argue again, no. That what it means to be in the image of God is something that allows us to rule and to relate, but it is not what it means to be in the image of God. Again, that is an effect and not the cause. So what is the cause? What does it mean to be in the image of God? This is absolutely huge. I don't think we miss this really often. I'd argue that what it means to be in the image of God of what makes us distinct in all of creation, valuable and significant is this, that you and I are bearers of his glory. But what it means for you and I to be in the image of God means that you and I are bearers of the very glory of God. That we are, in a sense, representatives. We can display and put on show the very glory of God in a way that the rest of creation cannot. That's what it means for you and I to be distinct, for you and I to be unique and special and set apart. Where do we get this idea? Let me kind of walk you through a few passages. Revelation chapter 21. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. I'm going to take you all the way to the end of your Bible. What you're going to see is that the Son of God is going to be ruling and reigning over a kingdom to come, and in that kingdom there will be no need of the sun because Jesus Christ will be radiating. One of the things I want you to begin to see is this radiating ability is the same thing that gets connected with reigning as well. Not just Revelations 21, but we'll also see in Genesis 1, verse 16, this. God made the two great lights to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars also. One of the things you see even in Genesis 1, you have sun, moon, stars. They're all radiating and shining. And in that radiating and shining ability, they're also ruling. They're governing. To have glory means you can govern. So in a sense, that glory radiating ability is what sets you and I up to rule on behalf of God. And so this is going to be applied to you and I. Uh, One of my favorite passages throughout the entire Bible is Psalm chapter 8. I think in many regards, what you and I do uh, as we open a yearbook is we look for a picture of ourselves and then we look for what people say about ourselves. I think Psalm chapter 8 is the yearbook profile for you and I of humanity. Here's Psalm 8. This is a great passage. I'd encourage you to memorize it and meditate on it later this week. Psalm 8, uh, verses 3 to 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him? What makes humanity distinct, unique, and special in God's eyes? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. 
You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Psalm 8. What makes you and I distinct? Psalm 8 will say what makes you and I distinct, what it means to be in the image of God is that God has crowned you and I with glory and with majesty. So the very beginning when God created humanity, humanity was crowned with glory and majesty. Humanity could represent and rule for God because they radiated the very glory of God. They were bearers of that glory. All of humanity was because they were created in his image. So male and female, all in his image, all radiating his glory. But what happened? What we're going to see in the future is Daniel chapter 12. Many of those who sleep in the dust will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Psalm 8 describes the beginning. Daniel 12 describes the end. In both the beginning and the end, what you see is humanity is radiating the very glory of God. But interestingly enough, Psalm 8, all of humanity is radiating. Daniel 12, only some is in the future. What's the difference? The difference is this, that some, he says, will arise to everlasting life. Those that have insight and those that arise to everlasting life will shine brightly. Notice, not all of humanity in the future will shine brightly. In fact, we see the reason why in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says this, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. The reality was after Genesis 1, we find Genesis 3. And at Genesis 3, man, humanity, Adam, Eve fall into sin. And because of that, all of humanity becomes distorted. They all still recognize and they all still have the image of God in them. But that image, that radiating glow is diminished. It's tarnished. It's distorted. It's not that it's been erased, but it has been defaced. It's been graffiti has been taken to it. And so because of that, Christ is now in a reclamation project for you and I. It's not just that he wanted to save some of us to be forgiven of our sins, but even more than that, he wants to restore and reclaim us so that we would again radiate the very glory of God that we were meant to have in creation, but we botched. And one of the things I find fascinating is not just that God in his fullness and in the fullness of his glory would move and in the overflow of that create you and I, which is astonishing in and of itself. But then when you and I would botch it and we would mess things up and we would in a sense, distort the very image of God in us that was supposed to be on display, God would then begin to work through human history to bring about a reconciliation of you and I, not just so that we would have heaven, but even more so that you and I would begin to renew and be restored and be reclaimed so that we could represent God again and radiate his glory. That's fascinating to me. In fact, I think for many of us, we are wrestling with whether you and I are valuable and significant. And I will argue to you this morning that there are two places that that question gets answered better than any other place or any other person. The first is in the garden at creation. God in his creating of you put a mark upon you, set you apart as distinct for all of humanity that he valued. And you are worthy and you are infinite in his sight in significance and in value. And even though we botched and even though we messed up, the second place that we see how valuable that we are is that we see the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, coming and dying on behalf of humanity to not only reconcile us to himself, but restore us, reclaim us, so that we would again represent him and radiate and show and bear his glory. For us, those are the two critical places in the garden and at Golgotha, at creation and at the cross that you and I see and we settle the question once and for all as to whether we're valuable and whether we're significant. And the reason that is so critical, because if we've not gone to those two places and settled that question in the entirety of our lives as we move out, we're going to be trying to settle that question and answer that issue and looking for other people to affirm us and provide us value and significance that God has dealt with already. And one of the things I want you guys to see is unless you've settled it in that place, 
the entirety of your life and the entirety of relationships will be about trying to affirm that critical value and that critical significance that you're still missing. And if you cannot settle it there, what you're going to begin to do relationally is using people to prop up your ego and to affirm your value. And the critical issue with that is if that's what you and I are doing in the world as we enter it, then we are going to begin to miss and overlook those kinds of people that are not deemed valuable. Those kinds of people that do not prop up or affirm our value and our worth will begin to disregard and overlook. And that is a critical issue as to why you and I have to settle that issue at creation and at the cross. Because God is going to call you and I into the world to interact with the world in a way that we will not be able to do unless we've settled that issue once and for all. And so let me encourage us and let me challenge us that you and I have got to stop looking around for value and start finding it at the at creation and at the cross in a garden and at Golgotha where it got answered once and for all. And if you've settled it there and if you found your value nailed down right there, then you and I can move into the world in the way that God has called us to. And one of the things I want you guys to see is not just that God values all of humanity, but he also values especially the poor. It's not just the poor economically, but what I want you guys to see is that God values all of humanity, but throughout the scriptures, he's going to move in a unique way towards those that are disregarded. Whether they're the economic poor, whether they're the shame, whether they're the outcasts, what you're going to see throughout your Bible is that God is in a unique way always moving towards them. Psalm chapter 72, we find this. For he will deliver the needy, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and the needy. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. Notice God is on the move to vindicate, to exalt, to protect the weak, the, the, the helpless, the voiceless, and the faceless. Because their blood is precious in his sight. And he's on a unique way moving towards them because culture in much of our day and time has disregarded many whose voices and faces now have been disregarded and overlooked. And what you're going to see throughout the scripture is that culturally, whoever that happens to, God is in a unique way moving towards them. Amos chapter 5 is pretty challenging. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. God is their vindicator. God is their defense. Therefore, at such a time, the prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil time. Notice Amos chapter 5, that because of culture who's overlooked certain kinds of people, it is common that the prudent, the one who's in a sense culturally wise, will remain silent. And so there's a voice, there is a face of those that are helpless, undefensible, who's remaining silent and unprotected, and God is moving towards them, but he's not just moving towards them, but he's calling you and I to move with them. James chapter 1, verse 27. If you've been studying the book of James with us in small groups this spring, you ran across this. James 1, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. Surprise, here it comes. To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I'd argue for us that as a Bible church, an independent Bible church that's really Bible-based, we do really good at the second half of this verse. (laughs) We do phenomenal at being unstained by the world, but I think at times we are not very good at entering in and engaging with the needs of our culture in our day and time. It's not just enough to be personally pious. You and I have to be engaged in the needs of the world. You and I at times can be very doctrinally accurate, but we can be worldly worthless. <laughs> it's not just good enough to be clean and stained, unstained from the world and to keep in our private schools and in our private bookstores and our private little communities. You and I have to be engaged and moving out in the world and attentive to it. I think there are times that we can be so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. <laughs> And I think James is going to put those two challenges before us and really call us to a balance to be not just personally pious, but worldly relevant. Not only just catching the needs that you and God has called us to personally, but also hearing the needs of our day and time and responding with the love of Christ to them. And so why don't we do it though? 
Why is that so hard for us? Why do we at times overlook them? Psalm 82 will tell us this. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Psalmist will say that in a sense you and I overlook them because you and I judge unjustly. There's not just something that is innocently and objectively wrong in our judgment values, but there's something that is not just externally wrong, but internally wicked in those distinctions that we make. In fact, James will say it like this, James chapter 2, verse 4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Honestly, as we've kind of walked through this semester and walked through tough questions in our college class, I will tell you that this issue has hit me between the eyes and come right at me in a way no other issue has this entire semester. I have a value system by the way that I see people and the way that I respond to the world that is incredibly off. And it's not just off in a very innocent way, but it's off in a very evil way. There's something within me that moves and values certain kinds of people and overlooks others. How do we do that and why do we do that? Honestly, I'm going to give you guys, in a sense, four examples for why and how I think you and I value wrongly. All right? There's, I think, four different ways that I think you and I have a judgment system that's off-based, all right? That we're going to grant honor to certain kinds of people and we're going to grant dishonor or overlook other kinds of people. And what are the distinctions? What are the determining factors? I'm going to give you guys four and kind of walk through them individually, all right? First, I think you and I value those that have coin. Uh, And what I mean by coin is not necessarily just fiscal ability or capacity, all right? I think you and I have a sense in which you and I will often move towards and value those that have influence. Maybe that's financial influence. Maybe that's political influence. I don't know what kind of influence it may be, but you and I have a bent, a tendency to move towards those that can influence and in a sense build up our value and help us, all right? In fact, I think what's interesting in James chapter 2 is right after he says to his audience that you judge unjustly, his first example that he goes to, he goes, hey, why is it when someone comes into your church that the rich person gets a great seat, he gets a great greeting, and he's, uh, he's praised and he's welcomed. But why is it the poor person comes in and he's disregarded, overlooked, and maybe even doesn't get a seat? In a sense, that's the first half of James chapter 2, because there's a tendency in all of us that judges and places honor on those that have, in a sense, the ability to influence. I think for us, even as a church that values and has a mission statement, raising up next generation leaders to reach our world for Christ, I think we have a value system and a call that is appropriate in what God has led us to, But I think at times it can for us as a church and it can for us even as individuals lead to an overlooking of those that are not strategic, an overlooking of those that maybe aren't leaders. I walk into a room and I look for the person that's strategic, that's an influencer, but maybe I fail to see the least of these. I think for many of us that's the same whether it's in a church setting or whether that's in business. How often do we look for the least of these or how often do we look for the most of these, the most strategic, the most influential I think for me, that's a really challenging issue. The second one I want to give you guys is this. Some of us, I think, make judgments not just based on influence, but we make judgments based on countenance. And I don't mean just simply the way a face looks. What I mean is we make judgments based on externals. There's a set of externals. There's a set of things that we see that we immediately make judgments to. So if you're a college student and you're walking on campus and you see someone in a core outfit, you immediately have a, in a sense, a profile of who they are and their values, right? Some of you walking on campus or walking in our city see certain people of a certain kind of race and make snap judgments based on those sets of externals. Maybe the way someone drives, or maybe the way someone uh, dresses, the way someone, the kinds of possessions they have, that the kinds of externals someone seems to display or possess often lead to the kinds of judgments that you and I make. And James will say that is evil. 
to judge based on externals and to make and to value a certain set of externals and disregard another set of externals is evil. There's no other way around it. And yet I think you and I do that and, and this thing has hit me right between the eyes and right in the heart all semester. As I walk through life and as I interact with people, based on what I see externally, it's almost impossible at times, but I begin to construct a profile. I begin to construct judgments about them that I don't even know them. That you and I inevitably make judgments and, and begin to show distinctions based on not just influence and not just externals, but I'd argue also you and I make judgments and show honor based on circumstance. Um, I, I'd argue to you guys that as the American church, that the greatest single obstacle to our involvement with missions is not a materialistic bent. The greatest obstacle for you and I to engage in missions is not a materialistic bent, but it is a preference and an evaluation of circumstances as king in our life. Here's what I mean. For us and for many of us, I think what is out of sight is often out of mind. And so the needs of the world, if I don't see them, therefore I don't care about them, and therefore then I don't invest in them. And so for us as a church, part of what we're trying to do with the commissioning even this morning is to not just allow these students to come up and feel in a formal way sent out by us, but part of it too is for us as a congregation, as a church, to see what God is doing, not just in our midst, but what he's going to do even this summer outside of our midst. And then even as they come back to hear stories of all that God did and all that they saw. And I think for many of us, the needs of the world, when they're out of sight, they're out of mind. And so one of the things I I want us to think about and one of the things I think that is challenging for us as we think about missions is based because of circumstances of those people that are far from us, we have a hard time engaging and investing in it. So one of the things I want us to begin to think about is, hey, not just based on those circumstances or a need for convenience, but I think because of that, we should not just allow those circumstances to prevent us from engaging. So even this morning, we're going to have a lot of different ways for you guys to engage in missions. So as you guys kind of step out um, after the service at our coffee social, we're going to have jars, we're going to have tables so where you guys can hear the needs of the world. It's also going to be an opportunity for you guys to involve yourselves financially in that. We're going to have over 60 students uh, and even more adults going overseas this summer. They're going to have six weeks to go that you and I don't have, all right? Because we're slaves at a job that doesn't allow us six weeks, right? But these students have six weeks to go, and we can't go in their place. And so it's our opportunity to not only pray for them as they go, but even partner with them financially and help send them. So we're going to have some opportunities for you guys to help partner with them financially. And one of the specific ways that we do that is something called work projects. And not only to give you a chance to engage in missions and invest in it, but it's also a chance for you to get something cleaned and something moved in your house, all right? So what we do for these work projects is we allow you families to sign up if there's some projects that you need done around your house. Then we'll have college students that will come and serve you, and it's an opportunity not only to give toward missions, but get something done in your home and, and allow you families to get to know some of these students as well and to kind of hear even more broadly, hey, what is God doing in their lives, and what is God going to be doing overseas in their lives and through their team this summer? So it's a great chance just to partner and get to know some students, and it's a great chance to also kind of participate in this whole missions thing. Also, I want to argue to you guys that while circumstance and convenience may be one of the biggest obstacles for us as a church in missions, I also think culturally it is the biggest reason for the issue of abortion in our day and time. I'm going to hit on an issue that is, uh, it's awkward if I don't hit on it, all right? Um, And it's also a really difficult issue to talk through. And so I kind of want to say this, I, I think in our culture today, the rise of abortion is because of an issue and an exaltation of circumstances over people at times. That because of a value of circumstances, you and I are choosing, and our culture is choosing, who gets life and who doesn't. In particular, statistics say that of of all the pregnancies in our country, 20% are aborted. 
Of unplanned pregnancies, 40% are aborted. Did you catch that? Of all pregnancies, 20% are aborted, but of all unplanned pregnancies, 40% are aborted. Why is that? Because when a set of circumstances that we prefer could be jeopardized, you and I then begin to place and make decisions on who gets life, who gets honor, and who doesn't. In fact, statistics also tell us that uh, over 74% of pregnancies, that were, according to surveyors, were done because of unwanted change of life circumstances. 38% were done because of uh, families and couples who felt like they were done with kids and were done having kids, and therefore because of that circumstantial reason, they chose who got life and who didn't. And honestly, this is a huge issue in our day and time, and it's an emotional issue. But I think statistics are showing that there is a reason, and the reason that we're playing, uh, choosing who's getting life and who's getting honor and shame is not just in missions, but it's also in abortion based on circumstance and on convenience. I'm going to give you guys a quote from John Piper, and he says this. Our modern and secular God-dethroning culture has endowed the will, the want, of a mother not just with sovereignty over her child, but with something vastly greater. We have endowed her will with the right and the power to create human personhood. When God is no longer the creator of human personhood, endowing it with dignity and rights in his own image, we must take that role for him, and we have vested it in the will of the mother. She now creates personhood. This quote is incredibly strong, but one of the things I want you guys to begin to see is this, that the issue in abortion is also an issue on circumstantial reasons for why we grant honor and dishonor. But it's also an issue in in moving and granting honor or dishonor. It's also an issue in moving into the very place of God, the creator, who's already determined value and significance. And it doesn't come based on coin. It doesn't come based on circumstance. And it doesn't come based on externals or countenance. And even more, it doesn't come based on capacity either. 90% of those that are diagnosed to have Down syndrome are aborted. Why is that? I think that's the case because there's a set of circumstances and a belief in our culture in our day and time that says capacity determiner who gets life and death, who gets value, who gets dishonor. It happens in an NFL draft. It happens every day in our life. What is and how is it that you and I determine who is valuable, who is significant, and, and who is worthy of honor? I, I want to argue, guys, this morning it's not based on capacity because if it's based on capacity, it's the reason why the elderly in our culture often are dismissed and overlooked. It's the reason why the poor are overlooked. It's the reason why the unborn are overlooked. That those are all faulty measures for why and how human life is significant. And yet, you and I do those all the time and every day in different kinds of ways. And so if that's all the case, then how do you and I begin to respond? What is our response and how do we begin to move in this culture in this day and time? Let me argue, first of all, I think you and I need to affirm and realize that glory is in all people. (laughs) No matter the capacity issues or limitations, no matter age, no matter countenance, no matter coin, no matter whatever it is that you and I may see or judge about someone, that all are infinitely valued because they have all been created in the image of God. And what you and I see right now may be a diminished capacity. It may be a tarnished image or maybe a tarnished ability to radiate the glory of God, but God is reclaiming and restoring and he's moving that right now in this day and time. And if that's the case, then you and I have to begin to move in respect all in love. And I say in love because of this. If you and I are all infinitely valuable, then I don't need to find my affirmation and my value in someone else. And if that's the case, I can begin to move outward in selfless love and in in a response to those that maybe can't build me up in any way, shape, or form. Third thing I'd say is this, that you are part of the solution. That I think it's not just in the way that you and I treat one another, but for some of us, we begin to be part of the solution. You know, honestly, I've been really encouraged hearing over the last few months, uh, especially as we've entered into parenthood, that the sheer number of families that are considering and have adopted, <laughs> that are moving culturally in our day and time and, and receiving and taking in many of those that have been disregarded. 
fact, I've been really amazed even by hearing some stories of families that are thinking about foster care that are saying, hey, even the most troubling and even the most challenging situations, you know what? I'm going to remove and love and I'm going to grant them value and honor because I see something in them that is valuable and is significant. No matter their behavior, no matter their difficulty, no matter their life experience so far. And the last thing I think is really impacting is, let me say, also for some of you college students, one of my favorite ministries that our church is about that often kind of flies under the radar is a ministry called Youth Impact. Um, for you college students, let me encourage you guys to consider it come next fall. You guys are considering where to invest yourself uh, for another school year. Youth Impact is one of our, uh, it, it's a college uh, volunteer-based outreach to inner city youth in Bryan and College Station. And it is a ministry that is moving and trying to re-esteem and revalue and pursue those that in some regards society and culture is diminished and passed over and overlooked. Seeing that there wasn't a strategic value there. And yet it's a ministry that's moving out in that opposite direction. And the last thing I want to say this morning is this, that you and I are called to see beyond today. <laughs> if all I see is what is today, then what I see is a really tarnished and a really distorted view of what God is doing. That in some regards, I see certain restoration, I see certain renewal, but in large part, my body is decaying. The culture is going downward further. And yet, if I continue to see only on today, then I will not look forward tomorrow and a day that is coming in which God is going to restore and bring renewal to all of culture, to all of creation, to even our physical bodies. All that would be overlooked, a day is coming when God will restore that, and that which is least will be most. That which does not seem valuable will be re-esteemed and revalued as it ought to be, because God has created in his image all of humanity and is all valuable. So I want to challenge us to see beyond today, because for those of us that see only in today, my fear is that we might be a lot like our culture in our day and time that was not too long ago, that there was a certain ge- generation and a certain race that was overlooked, a certain race that was not granted the rights of dignity and personhood. In many regards, I've wondered, where was the church in those days? Maybe they were a lot like the person in Amos 5 that considered silence was prudent. In many regards, I want to challenge us that we would be the kind of people that would move in our day and time, remain unstained from the world, but we engaged in revaluing and renewing the value of all of humanity. No matter of capacity, no matter of externals, that we would be the kind of people that would seem so cross-cultural and so counter-cultural as we re-engage. And as we re-engage, I pray that we could do it in a way that would not just be about practical helps, but we would bring the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms, that brings renewal, that brings hope, that begins the transformation and the reclamation process in so many of our lives. And if you're here this morning, I I hope that you've made that decision. And for those of us who have made that decision, I pray that we would be ambassadors of that message. That we would be proclaimers of the hope that you and I have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us this morning. Father God, I give you great thanks that you have moved in our lives in a really distinct way. Um, That you have done something beyond what we could have anticipated that when we were most hostile to you, when we seemed bent in a direction that we could not have been farther from you, you looked and seeing not what was, but what could be. And you extended your grace and you extended your kindness towards us, Father. And I pray that we would be the kind of people that would carry that message, that would carry that reclamation process into the lives of those in our culture and our generation. I pray that you would allow us to have great impact in the spheres of influence that you've put us in and that you give us great wisdom as we interact with our day and our time. I pray that we could be winsome as we do that, wise as we do that as well. And Father, I pray that for us as we head home, Lord, I pray that you would give us a strong sense and a reminder this morning that no matter where we are, no matter the struggles that we're having, that you have deemed us worthy of life. Uh, not just life as created, but even eternal life. And that for those of us who've made that decision, who have trusted in your son, whose death removed the penalty of our sin, but you've also begun a process in our life of restoring, freeing us from sin and transforming us back into that image of glory. The very image that you created in us and placed upon us at creation. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd begin to see us, uh, begin to allow us to see that restored and begin to see freedom and transformation in our lives, Lord. 
Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Thank you all for being here this morning. Feel free to stick around at our coffee social and we'd love to have a chance to interact. You guys have a great week.